questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. These words have comforted countless who have endured hard times, stress, suffering, and even grief. And for many who suffer through debilitating depression, these trials James speaks of can last months or even years. Relief is elusive. Comfort is unattainable. And finding joy may even be a pipe dream. Michael's guest on today's podcast is Diana Groover. She's the author of an upcoming book with InterVarsity Press called Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and doubt. She looks back into church history and finds depression in the lives of some of our most beloved saints, including Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King Jr. Drawing on her own experience with depression, Diana offers a wealth of practical wisdom for those in the darkness and those who care for them. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, Diana Groover, welcome to the Restoring Soul podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. You have a brand new book out, and it is with InterVarsity Press, and I had the joy of reading it way in advance, and I loved it for so many different reasons. But the book is Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. And first of all, even if the book was awful, that's a great title. Oh, thank you. That was in part with the collaboration of the wonderful staff at IVP. So I can't claim sole credit for that one. So I always like to ask, both as somebody who's written a book and, you know, the creative process that you went through, when you hear that title, just the title alone, and you know what's inside of the book, the hope and the encouragement, what do you hope people feel or think when they see that book title or when they hear about a book by that title? Hmm. I just hope that they know they're not alone. I think that's part of why I love that word companions. Um, I think a struggle like depression can feel very isolating. And so just for someone to know you're not alone in this, there's companions with you. There are people walking with you through this. Yeah, that sense of not being alone. When I read the title, and even today, and I'm really great at memorizing titles, but bad at subtitles, and I would just butcher it if I didn't look at it. But Seven Saints Who Struggle with Depression and Doubt, when I read that, something in me exhales. Like, okay, wait, number one, who are those saints? But really, these saints struggled, and they struggled with depression and with doubt. Almost, I imagine some people would go, well, how could they be saints then? Yeah, sure. And I think that's part of why I wanted to write this book and share these stories, because it's one thing for me to share my story with depression or for you to share your story of your own struggles, for us us to look at people that we call heroes and say, oh, they, they struggled like I do. 
um, not only does that add to that sense of not being alone, but I think it starts to strip down some of the guilt that we so easily feel. So you have a, a master's in spiritual formation from Gordon Conwell, one of the top evangelical seminaries in the world, uh, I would argue. And um, you really did with this book, a deep dive into church history. And it's, it's not a light book. It's not heavy and inaccessible, but like you really excavated church history. And in that looked at these saints and looked at their narrative and discovered that, yes, these struggles were really there, but the whole uh, energy for this book came out of your own story. So can you talk about that in your battle with depression? Sure. Um, so I was first diagnosed with depression and went into therapy and started medication my senior year of college. I can see seeds of it before then. Uh, it wasn't quite as overwhelming as it was at that point, but looking back through old journals, you can see the the seeds of it building. Um, and at the time, I was at a, a small Christian liberal arts college. That struggle, going back to that sense of being alone or that sense of guilt, there was a sense of you know, maybe I'm not strong enough to fight this, right? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm not a good enough Christian or not being faithful enough, or I could just will my way out of the struggle. So I carried that, that experience. I wasn't as depressed as I was at that point when I started seminary, but, you know, having that experience as a part of my background, it, it makes you start to notice things. And so that's how I started to notice some of these stories is having experienced depression myself whenever you start to see that in the lives of other people, you just start to pay attention to it. Almost like a lens that you have as you, Absolutely. as you look through anything and everything you read, encounter relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't go into much detail in the book about this, but there were hints that this was difficult interpersonally. And by that, I mean, you know, depression is among many things it's isolating and, and in part because of the energy that is simply required to engage socially. A lot of that is also the negative thinking and the way that we can perceive relationships negatively. But when you were in this Christian community and struggling this way, were there people that didn't understand or were there people that told you like, you know, pray harder and this is a lack of faith. You, you talked about that within yourself, but I've heard stories. You know, I've heard more of those things said in my presence after the fact. Um, I've had some experience, you know, where people in Christian community maybe don't know that that's a part of my own history or something that I struggle with who have said that. But I've never actually had someone directly say that to me, which um, is in some ways a gift because I know a lot of people have had a lot of hurt of things that have been said to them within Christian community. Um, the, the community I was a part of in college was unusual, um, at, at least at the time that I was there in the circles that I walked in. It felt like there were a bunch of perfectionists, young, ambitious perfectionists, um, which is not all bad, but can bear some difficult fruit, I think, especially whenever that becomes applied to our faith. So it's not just about academics or the way we look, but also about being the best Christian and how do you define that? And I think spiritual perfectionism is soul sucking and it it distracts us from the gospel message of a God who came to us when we weren't perfect and we didn't have it all together. So in my experience, I didn't have as many direct comments, but it was more the aura 
um, around me at the time. What was ironic about that is I know that I had some good friends and, and now after the fact, I know of a lot of other people that were struggling with a lot of the same things I was, but we just didn't, for whatever reason, didn't seem to have the freedom to talk about it. I, uh, I adjunct at a seminary and I was a full-time prof for five years. So I'm saying this in that context, but you might've heard the old adage of, you know, I'm going to cemetery instead of seminary. And for a long time, seminaries were not known for spiritual formation, which you did your training in. And that's really to, to help you develop a lens and a way of cultivating your inner life, right? So you would be given permission and encouragement to attend to your inner life. But it seems that with the high emphasis on academia and the intense learning and the demands that are there, it almost seems as if seminary sets us up for some kind of mental health struggle, whether it's anxiety, perfectionism, or depression. And is that part of what you saw too, uh, like this achievement drivenness? Yeah, I think there can definitely be some of that. I, I remember some professors who very much pushed back against that. Um, one of the counseling professors that I took a couple courses with would always say, look, you can get an A in my class and you can fail at life. Mm. And I would much rather you take a doc, you know, take a hit on my class and your grade, but choose the life things. So I was fortunate to have a couple professors who had more of that mentality. And I tell you what, it's a breath of fresh air because you're right. I think that sort of environment of very long reading lists and, and all of these assignments. They're good. They're beneficial, but it, it can lead to a lot of pressure. Well, and just the whole emphasis on um, that learning cognitively, academically, and intellectually is the same as life with God, and it's not. You talk in the book about, and I love this sentence, how the church's relationship with depression is fraught. And um, you even give what I think is just fascinating, a little bit of history on how the church has misinterpreted and mishandled depression. Talk a little bit about that. So before I get into the negative stuff, I will say I was fascinated to see how there were some ways in some of these stories that the church, it feels as though they handled depression better hundreds of years ago than they do now. There was space for people to struggle and there wasn't judgment. It was understood. This is a part of their body. It's a, a bodily issue and we need to address that. But as you said, unfortunately, that's not always been the case. So um, we've had ways that scripture has been mishandled to interpret depression as a spiritual problem. Some people throughout history have looked at stories like uh, the disciple Judas committing suicide saying, um, you know, this was a result of his rejection of God and his rejection of Christ. Therefore, suicide must be a sign of rejection of Christ. You have the story of Nebuchadnezzar um, and his transformation into this animal. He lost his sanity. And that was also a sign of God's judgment in that story. So people throughout history have also pointed to that. During the Inquisition, there were some examples of, of people who were arrested or tortured uh, because of their mental illnesses. And then of course, we have um, the examples of the mental asylums throughout history of treating people who had genuine struggles, depression and otherwise, as criminals. And the things that were done to them are horrific. That wasn't necessarily always perpetrated by the church explicitly but it was within a, a largely Christian society um, in Europe, for example. You know what you just taught me? And I'm always looking for um, examples to 
be humble and to learn how to be humble. My assumption um, in the conversation is like, okay, modern is good and ancient is bad. And regarding the church, you know, the Inquisition and all the bad stuff in church history, I just kind of assume, wow, well, 500 years ago, they didn't have Prozac and cognitive therapy. So, but wow, thank you for that. Because in many ways, life was far less complex, though they may not have had as many resources and community would have been easier. And, um, you know, I always think of uh, history, past, medieval, whatever is like the princess bride scenes where people are <laughs> laying in bed and there's someone tending to them with a wet cloth. And um, I, I kind of picture that. And we now know that what really heals depression is connection and relationship and care for as long as it takes. And yes, things like medication and therapy, but I'm just, I'm really struck by your comment. I kind of went, huh, that's right. So thank you. Oh yeah. No, that was a fascinating part of the research. If you ever want some light reading or more like uh, if you struggle with insomnia and you, you need to have something to <laughs> help you go to sleep, um, Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, I think it's about 900 pages. I admittedly read, I, I've not read the whole thing. I've read about half of it, but uh, that would have been 17th century, I believe, 16th or 17th century that when he wrote that. And it's it's shock. I mean, there's some things that we would say, oh, they're dated. But as far as his approach to depression, understanding the physical dynamics of it, the fact that it needed to be in part medically treated and in part communally treated, it is. It's shockingly modern. And I think that's part of what I hope some of these stories have to teach us is to remind us that thinking about something like mental illness and understanding that, yes, it's the community and yes, it's our spirituality, but we need this medical part of it as well to help our bodies um, regain stability. That's not new. And that's what's so cool about the book is um, in a very fluid way, you take these saints and connect it to the present day. Mm -hmm. And as you weave in your own story um, in different places, it, it just feels not like here's someone from the past that you should do what they do, but you really wove it together. So it was helpful. So, there are, is it eight saints that you focus on? Seven. Seven. Sorry. Well, I guess the extra one would be you. You're the eighth saint. The Bible says that we're saints, right? So you don't have to wait until the Pope makes you one. Um, You you talked about Mother Teresa, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King. I thought that was a great little riff, by the way, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King. I thought you might've had Teresa May because you had Mother Teresa and just kind of double up on the names. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So we have to keep this light, you know. Yes, yes. Because we're talking about (laughs) depression. Who's your favorite one, if you had to choose out of those seven saints, the one that you personally found yourself most drawn to and why? The answer may be a bit unusual because I think he's also the most uh, depressing of the stories. I just really connected with William Cooper. Um, He was a hymn writer and a poet in... um, 18th century England. And I just, I found a volume of his letters and I couldn't put it down. One of my friends actually said, Diana, you need to put William Cooper to rest. You've done enough research. You can write the chapter. But there was something that really drew me to him. Like I said, I think his is one of the saddest stories because in the midst of his depression, 
he lost sense of of not only God's presence, but he genuinely believed that he was outside of God's mercy, that he was one exception where God's mercy couldn't extend to him, which is tragic. But you know, he had a great sense of humor. He would write his friends little poems and he would take walks with his dog and he gardened and there was something about him, although he had a lot of sadness in his story that was still very warm. And um, I'd love to meet him someday. Mm. That's neat to think about both future conversation and what that might be like. What did he teach you? You know, if each of these saints gives a lesson, and by the way, because I was born and raised Catholic, I didn't know who William Cooper was. I, I don't. I don't know a lot of the Protestant. Um, hymn writers, because that was never a big part of my life. So I enjoyed learning about him. But what did you specifically learn from him? So when I, I, and I say this, I tell this uh, about this internal, my own internal experience in, in the book, but whenever I sat down at the end of my research, I said, Lord, where were you for him? He loved you. He loved you even when he felt like you'd rejected him. Why didn't you break through with something? You can do that. You, you know, you could have supernaturally broken through that that darkness of depression in his life and showed up to give him some kind of reassurance. And I really had to wrestle with that. But the thing that I thought of when I thought of his story, and I guess it's not really a lesson that he explicitly taught me, is that God showed up for him in the relationships that he provided for him. He had some great friends. There's one story where in one of his um, intense uh, depression episodes, he couldn't leave the house, couldn't get out of bed. And then one day, all of a sudden, he got up, he walked across the garden, and he showed up at his friend John Newton's house. And John Newton's the the writer of, of Amazing Grace. And he didn't leave their house for 18 months. I can't imagine that happening. And I love having people in my home. But having someone who's in a major mental health crisis just suddenly one day show up at your house and not leave and need a lot of care. He was on suicide watch during that time. That's stunning. That's really amazing. It is. And the fact that, I mean, reading what John and Mary Newton had to say about that, they loved him. I mean, they wanted him to get well and they admitted that it was challenging. But they were thankful that they could be the people to care for him. And so when I look at episodes like that in William Cooper's life, I think that's where God was. God was in these people that kept showing up to give him the support and the care that he needed to sometimes literally keep him alive. Mm. And so that turns my eyes to my own life, whether it's with something like depression or something else. I think it's really easy when we're in times of struggle to say, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you breaking through for me in a supernatural way? And sometimes I need the reminder that he may not show up in the way that I want him to, but if I look around, I'll see relationships around me that are his grace to me in the midst of that struggle. Yeah, his grace was the Newtons. Yeah. That reminds me of a story, Parker Palmer, the author and spiritual writer. There was a, a journal many years ago that Henry Nowen and he and others wrote, and it was called Weavings. And Parker came out for the first time that I know and shared about his deep, deep, long-standing struggle with depression. And he fell into a major depressive episode and just had anhedonia, you know, the symptom of not being able to 
desire or experience pleasure and really was quite numb. And he said that at one point, the only thing that sustained him is that a friend would come to his house every day when he couldn't get out of bed and rub his feet with lotion. And just that tactile sensory aspect makes me think of uh, William Cooper at the Newtons for 18 months and just that space to be a wounded person and to be loved on. And there again, because we do think, well, go to your doctor, get medication, go to therapy, good things. But so often it's something like relationship. And that's something that the church can offer. And instead of me focusing on the negative of what the church doesn't do, that to be truthful and fair that the church has done probably since the beginning of the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something that I wish that, um, or I, I hope that pastors know, right? I think I've heard some concern expressed before of, oh, well, if we tell people who are depressed to go to their doctor or go to a therapist, then what's the church supposed to do? I think the church is poised to be a great support to people who are struggling with depression or other mental illnesses. And part of it comes from recognizing what they can't do. But part of it recognizes that, as you're saying, the the community that is the lifeblood of the church is so important for people who are struggling. So I'll put you on the spot because you you mentioned at the top of the program um, and you wrote in the book, being on medication. And I've been on medication for bipolar disorder um, since 1998. And so what would you say to a Christian who has been told or who believes, you know, my pastor told me or someone said that if I, if I'm a Christian, that I shouldn't be on medication. That's a common one. It is. Sadly, it is. I think we will find a great amount of benefit if we can learn to think about mental illness like we do other physical illnesses. I don't think as many pastors would say to somebody who has high blood pressure, you shouldn't take medication. Or if they are diagnosed with cancer, you shouldn't do chemotherapy. There's an understanding with other types of illnesses. Well, of course, you do what the doctor says, and then the church is here to support you with whatever that looks like. And so I would say to the person, try to think of it that way. You know, if if you had any other illness, your community would most likely encourage you, yes, do what the doctor says, and then we will be there. We'll support you with meals. We'll come help take care of your kids. We'll come keep company with you. We'll come pray for you. And so I just say to the person, it's no different. Our, Our brains break down sometimes just the way that our bodies do. It feels different, maybe internally, because it it's a part of our thoughts and our emotions, which we sometimes feel like we must be able to control in a way that we can't with our blood pressure or um, our hearts or something like that. But I think um, accepting those things as a gift of God so that we can continue to live and be a part of his work in the world, um, I think that's a, a more healthy way to, to think about it. Uh, those are great thoughts. And so often, if people are at a point where they do need medication, it's not just the blues, but really depression, you can't do any of the, quote, spiritual work, relational work, emotional work, until you really are able to process things cognitively, because it it does have such an impact on our our thinking and our mental speed and memory and things like that. I want to come back to your book, and I want to make sure before we end that we get to talk about Mother Teresa, because she was my favorite her struggle of God was silent for all those years. That's been written about some. 
but I love the fact that it was a perspective on a woman and her unique passion, energy, and doing externally that she's famous for accomplishing such great things, but this internal sense of feeling very impoverished. Um, so I'd like to know one other of your favorites out of the seven and then get to Mother Teresa. Sure. I also, so the, another person that I particularly loved was Charles Spurgeon. He has been, I mean, you said about people writing about Mother Teresa, the things that have been written about Charles Spurgeon, by golly, where do you start? Um, even his sermons. I mean, we have thousands of sermons that he preached over his lifetime. But I just appreciate the fact of, with him that he's so matter of fact about depression. It's something that will pop up in some of his sermons. And it. I think sometimes now if we share about our struggle with depression, it feels like this huge revelation that we're revealing to people this thing. And I never get that impression with him. Um, he just, he's eager to share stories. And, um, the thing that I, I love about him though, is that he really allowed that experience of depression to shape him as a pastor. It gave him a lot of compassion for people. He would tell, he would say from the pulpit, look, you may not look at people who struggle with something like depression or any other host of, of issues and tell them they just need to snap out of it. You need to approach them with compassion, um, just as God has shown compassion to you. And so just thinking about what it would feel to sit, uh, to, to sit under his pastoral care, um, I would like that, I think. Yeah, that, so I um, read the book, I read that chapter, but I forgot that aspect of, of kind of shepherding tenderness mm -hmm. to people. And it's not surprising that in light of his own struggle, that that's what came out yeah. to others. Um, and I, I think the other thing that's interesting about him, even just thinking about our current situation with the coronavirus, um, he, he, was a, he started a pastor's college during his ministry. So he was teaching pastors and training. And there's a volume published of some of the lectures that he gave to them. And one of the lectures is devoted, it's called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And it's basically warning pastors, look, don't be surprised if you get depressed at some point during your ministry. Don't be surprised and feel like it's something strange. This happens. This does not mean that you're failing. It does not mean that God's not going to use you. These are the experiences in my own life where I've seen depression pop up. Here are a couple ideas of some things maybe to combat them. But if it does come, hold tight. Your ministry is not over. This is just something that happens to us sometime. And I think about, I think a lot of us are struggling with our mental health in this season more than normal. And I think pastors are bearing a lot of the weight of that as well. And so to have someone share, not only with parishioners, but also with future pastors, to, to be prepared and not shocked and, and just a word of comfort in the midst of that, I think is really powerful. It is. Can you talk about Martin Luther King? Sure. He's an interesting one because um, obviously there's a lot of scholarship about him um, and there are still people who are living who knew him personally. But I, I was a little surprised whenever I found out that he was depressed. Uh, he didn't speak about it much publicly, which I think considering his context makes a lot of sense. But reading stories and um, hearing some interviews about people who knew him personally, I personally feel like he struggled with 
diagnosable depression, um, especially at the end of his life. There's a great documentary uh, that HBO put out a couple years ago called King in the Wilderness. And there's some great interviews in there sharing some of the struggle, as I said, especially the last year, year and a half of his life. You know, we talk about King now and we see him as this strong leader. You know, he's just plowing ahead and people have rewritten him and repurposed him for a variety of, of things. And so to find the the humanness behind that, I think is very moving and it's had, it's given me even more respect for the work that he did, knowing that he was wrestling with his own internal struggles while trying to lead this huge movement. Yeah, our heroes are, we're probably used to saying that, that every hero is flawed, but we don't think of our heroes as vulnerable, mm. that we almost define them as heroes by their invulnerability or their indomitability. And um, gosh, it's not like he didn't have reason to be depressed. Absolutely. You know, most of America at that time during his life hated him for what he was doing. He became the lightning rod um, from non-blacks. And then he was kind of carrying the weight of all of the oppression upon himself. And he felt that deeply. So let's transition to Mother Teresa. Oh, Mother Teresa. I think out of the people in the book, she is probably the most difficult to say, oh, she definitely struggled with what we would now call clinical depression, just because we don't actually know that much about her struggle. As I'm sure you know, the true nature of her internal struggle wasn't known until about within the last 10 to 15 years um, in the process of her canonization. Some letters were published that she had written to some some of her closest spiritual advisors and her spiritual directors and confessors that, that told a story of how she had had this deep, um, very intimate relationship with God. And then whenever she uh, left the order that she had been a part of to begin um, the missionaries of charity in Calcutta, which is what she became famous for, it was like the lights went out and she couldn't feel God's presence with her. She couldn't, um, she didn't have a sense of, of God speaking to her like she once did. And that, although she's known, I think really ironically, she's known for being such a joyful person. That that internal sense of what we would normally call joy inside of her as far as her relationship with God just went dead. And she lived like that for the remainder of her ministry. Which is just amazing to think about. You know, so whether it was clinical depression, certainly what St. John would call a dark night of the soul. Yes. Um, and to not to, to live a dual life in the sense that there was a part of her that was um, didn't have integrity, but a hidden life where she just didn't put that on people and to accomplish the things that she did. Yeah. And she, she had taken a vow early on in her religious life to never refuse Jesus anything. That's something that she had vowed to God. And so Whenever you read how she saw the struggle, um, part I think of why she kept it hidden was because she understood this or, or felt as though this was a way that she had to say yes to God. She used to say, uh, let me see if I can get this right, to, to give whatever he takes and receive whatever he withholds or something like that with a big smile. That, that was the thing that she wanted to do. And so 
in this particular instance, she felt like if, if it felt like God was withholding his presence from her, that was something she had to accept. And to talk about it publicly or, or make a big fuss out of it would somehow be detracting from that that submission and that willingness to accept whatever God uh, sent her way. You know, I, I can relate to that struggle, um, not because of my own diagnosis, but as somebody who is somewhat of a public figure through being an author and a ministry and a podcast, I love to provoke us to talk about things like depression. And you wrote your book about companions in the darkness so that people could see that there's saints that struggle. And I would always err on the side of getting people to talk about things, but there's something to be said, not for fake it till you make it and put a smile on your face, but you know, what does it mean to say in the midst of my pain, I'm going to make a choice to be connected I used to teach a psychopathology class, and when we would get to the depression unit, I would always quote Abraham Lincoln, who said, people are about as happy as they choose to be, and we would break up into dyads, and people had to discuss for 30 minutes, true or false, agree or disagree, are people as happy as they choose? And of course, when we have gone through our depressive struggles, we know you can't just choose to be happy, and yet you have to make a choice to become the kind of person um, or to walk the kind of path where you can be happy. So there's just this tension there. And again, I think that someone who is considered a saint and a great Christian that people would look to, there's there's a sense of you can't just go one way or the other. We have to learn to live in that tension. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's something as I, I wrote the book, I realized I kept asking this question what does it look like to follow Jesus faithfully when you're depressed? Mm. Right? How do you hold that tension of recognizing this is a part of my life? This is a part of my story. I can't will myself out of this. But what does faithfulness look like? What does it look like to keep holding a space for joy even when I'm waiting for it to fully arrive? I love how you said that. Um, and so I'll, I'll state it back in the form of a question. Could it be that maybe faithfulness as opposed to faith is more important in the midst of a dark time. Yeah, I think so. And I would say I have found it to be more helpful to, and this is something that I, I recommend to people. If you obsess over how much faith you have, or if you even obsess over how much faithfulness you have, you're going to tie yourself up in knots. Because whenever you're in that place where everything is dark or you can't sense God's presence with you or you can barely get out of bed in the morning, to add that on top of something, it's not going to help you. But if we want to talk about faithfulness, I find it to be so much more helpful and, and, and it does hold that space open for joy if I focus on God's faithfulness to me instead of me trying to be faithful to him. Because when you're in that dark place, that's where the hope comes is to say, God is faithful to you and he has promised to be with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. That's beautiful and a great spiritual formation principle, right? That ultimately that, that transformation on the inside and the formation is us simply cooperating with God and showing up and it's he that's, that's causing that. So yeah, that's, that's really important. And I know I myself probably have a tendency being self-critical, struggling with shame, where I want to make the focus about, you know, my faith or my faithfulness, because then I can do something about it. Right. And I don't have to trust. 
So what would you say with your personal experience of depression, your training as someone who disciples and does spiritual formation, and your book, looking at deep, deep look at these seven saints through history, to a loved one for someone who's uh, a loved one of someone who's struggling with depression or in a dark time, or someone who's actually in that place of struggle? You're not alone. That put, carrying through the thought of what we were just talking about, first of all, you're not alone because God is with you. Um, he has not abandoned you. Regardless of how you might feel, he's not left. Secondly, I, I would say get the help that you need, right? Mm-hmm. I think as we've said, there's mixed feelings about that in the Christian community, which is unfortunate. But go see your doctor, go get connected to a therapist and and take that step. I think that act of, of trying to get help in that way is an act of faithful discipleship. Um, I think the third thing I would say is find the people who can be helpful to you in this season. Um, there's a, a writer and counselor, Gay Hubbard, who, who says, you know, the reality is when we're going through pain is that we can't do it alone, but not everybody can help us. And so I think both if you're walking through that yourself, or if you're a family member or a loved one walking with someone else through depression, being able to say to the people who are not helpful, who are going to just keep more judgment or provide unhelpful commentary or whatever the case might be, being willing to draw up a, a boundary there. But then the people who are there, who can give you the ministry of their presence and encouragement and be those people that will let you come stay in their house for 18 months if necessary, by golly, find them and hold on to them and thank God for them because they're going to be both a a means of God's presence with you and um, just such a helpful part of finding healing and wholeness through that, that journey. Are there things that one should not say or never say to a person that's depressed? You know, it's interesting that you ask that. I actually wrote a blog post a couple of years ago with a long list of things not to say to someone in pain. Um, it's pretty hefty because I think there are a lot of zingers. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Um, well, I don't know if I can remember all of them off the top of my head. I, I think... Um, we could make a song up, like, <laughs> and we could remember them all for our listeners. Exactly, F- future, exactly. Future podcast. Perfect. Love it. Um I think some of the the, t- the heavy hitters are um, trying to offer an explanation for why someone is going through pain. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we're given that. Most of the time we're not. And I would say as an outsider, you are probably not the person who can articulate why God is allowing somebody to suffer. So don't do it. Um, I think the healing by spirituality card is also very helpful. The, you know, why don't you just pray more? Here's this verse. You just need to take every thought captive. You just need to have more faith, whatever the case might be. Um, that also I think ends up causing more pain than benefit related to that is the, um, you know, silver bullet by whatever your pet, uh, alternative health um, ah yes. Go, is, you know, <laughs> go get this supplement or take take this powder or something like that. Right. The have you tried dot 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 unless you're actually invited to be a part of the brainstorming process. If they're genuinely struggling, they probably have already tried it. And even if they have it, 
that's not your place to be a part of that, that brainstorming process unless you're welcomed into that. I mean, I could go on, but I think those are some of the ones that we see yeah. most often. Well, and then flip that over. I think of Job's friends who they sat with him. What are the, what are the stories say? Seven days or eight days. And they do not utter a word. They just sit with him. What now and called the ministry of presence and then they open their, open their mouth and they just start spouting nonsense and giving platitudes and advice and theological maxims and things like that. And it all goes downhill from there. It does. And, and the, the simple power of like the Newtons with William Cooper um, and like you and I have doubtlessly experienced with people that really care that say it's okay. And as you said, you're not alone. Last question. The scriptures speak of suffering as a blessing, which of course is easy to know in our head, but hard to feel. Uh, so in James 1, consider it joy when you face trials of all kinds. What gifts have you received through your journey with depression? I think one is compassion. I think uh, depression, as with a lot of other struggles, is one that you can't fully empathize with someone else unless you've gone through it yourself. And so having felt that darkness, I feel like it helps me to be in a better position to help other people or to exercise compassion towards them and actually be a good people helper in the midst of that, a good friend. Another thing I think is, and I I have to be careful how I say this because I know some people might say this and and twist it the wrong way. My experience with depression was a training ground for me to learn the gospel in a fresh way and in a very life transforming way. Um, I was, I, I am very thankful that the church that I was going to in the midst of that, it's a little Anglican church plant with a, a rector who is just, he's, he's a gem. I've, I've not met many pastors quite like him, but he is, he, he preached grace every Sunday, regardless of whatever the sermon was. And it was always a message that said, you know, you don't have it all together. That's no surprise to God. You know, he knows you're broken. He knows you're needy. And what he's inviting you to is not to piece yourself together or, um, you know, try to graduate from his grace. It's just to grow deeper and deeper into that and, and learn deeper and deeper dependence in that. And, and that's what the gospel is about. It's coming needy and finding a God who stoops down and meets us in the midst of that. And so for me, because I was in that vulnerable state where I was very in tune with how broken I was and how needy I was and how desperate I was, to be met week after week with a message of a God who was for me and present with me in that, it it really enlivened and reshaped my understanding of the gospel in a way that even in times when I haven't been depressed has has um, has stuck and and as I think has really transformed my own thinking. Mm. That is just so beautiful. And so um, it almost cheapens the word because it, the, the word doesn't convey the full sense of what I want to say, but redemption and this idea that, that you've somehow gained something so much more as you've been in and through and in this, it makes me go back to James chapter one, where it talks about the suffering and what it does in us. And then it says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And there's just a depth to you that um, when people like you study spiritual formation, that that often tends to either cultivate 
depth in you or draw people who already have a depth. But I'm not surprised that as I talk with you, that this depth comes out of you really allowing your suffering and the depression to shape you. And not everybody has the community or the resources or the ability to do that. But I'm so happy that it has shaped you and that you've, you've given the world this gift of your book and that it is a blessing to people and that they don't feel alone. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Are you going to be writing more? Do you have other books on the horizon or in your mind or heart? You know, I hope so. Um, I would love that. I, I don't have any active plans at the moment. This is my first book, so I'm, uh, and I also have a toddler at home, so I'm pretty busy these days. So we'll see what comes. I the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is, um, you know, it comes up a lot of times when I talk to people about their spiritual life when they're depressed or they're struggling. And as I say multiple times in the book, I think the way we usually approach the spiritual life doesn't seem to work very well when we're depressed um, or doesn't work in the same way. So one thing I'd like to explore further is maybe some recommended practices or recommended spiritual disciplines that people could engage when they're in a place where they're more depressed that would be life-giving to them and uh, acknowledge where they are in that season and the limitations Mm. that come with that. Oh, well, we can have a conversation about that, whether the book gets done or not, but I sure hope so. And I just also want to say this, um, as I read the book, I just, I kept thinking, gosh, I, I hope you go on to get a doctorate and a PhD because <laughs> you're, you're obviously really, really bright, but there's a lot of people that can restate facts, but you, and there's probably a lot of people who can write theology books and commentaries, but this blend of memoir and history and theology, it was very, very rich. And I, I felt like I wished I could sit under your teaching you know, as your professor at a seminary, I just, I, I may never meet you, but I just, I get that vibe that you're somebody that could really, really be really dynamic in that setting. So I know with young kids and everything else, but just keep on creating and allowing your story to be so generative because it really is. Thanks. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay, Diana Groover, thank you for your time. Again, thank you for the, the life labor of putting all of this down on paper. I hope our listeners get to experience the book. Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. RestoringTheSoul.com